You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Brian Kaplan, who is a professor of economics at George Mason University, and who is also a prolific writer. And I've got a bunch of his books here. I think your first book was called The Myth of the Rational Voter. That is correct. Yeah, I got us this one here. Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. This one is called Open Borders. This one, The Case Against Education, and then your prolific blogger. And so we've got a lot of these blogs that are compiled into a couple collections. Oh, I like that. Right? We've got How Evil Are Politicians, Labor, Econ Versus the World, Don't Be a Feminist, and most recent one, Voters as Mad Scientists. Welcome, Brian. It is fantastic to be here, Greg. Well, this latest compilation of yours has as its main theme, the irrationality of voters. And I think this takes you all the way back to your first book, The Myth of the Rational Voter. And at one point, I remember when I was in graduate school, economics and the methodology of economics was infiltrating all of the adjacent social sciences through what we call rational choice. And in particular, political science was being taken over and There were all sorts of models, kind of spatial voting models and so forth. And of course, you know, public choice was taking off. And I think the idea was that we could explain what's happening in the political marketplace using the same assumptions about human behavior that we make in economics. And this helped us, I think, illuminate a bunch of different things. Subsequent to that, economics itself underwent a bit of a transformation which we now call behavioral economics. And I think what you're sort of anticipating is this idea that this economic approach to political science also needs a a reformation because human beings don't behave the way the traditional economic models suggest. So are you trying to create something like a behavioral political economy? Is that sort of the idea? Yeah, of course. Basically, your story is correct. That's the way the history proceeded. You've got your regular economics, and then you have some economists who like psychology saying, hey, actually, when you look at the psychological evidence, the models aren't really right. But then, strangely, there's very little attempt to go and apply the psychology to economic models of politics. Rather, even people who really like psychology normally just say, okay, well, now we see what's wrong with people, and let's have government go and fix it. So, well, wait a second here. Government's made up of people, right? So they're going to be subject to these same psychological problems that you were talking about for markets. So what optimism is really justified here? Now, what I actually go along and say is, even if you don't think that the psychological evidence matters very much in markets, it almost definitely matters in politics precisely because in politics, the typical voter faces almost no cost of voting for anything. You could go and vote for the opposite of the best policies for yourself and what happens to you, the very same thing that would have happened anyway, because you're just one tiny person in the voting world. Voting is not like shopping. It's not like whatever you vote for, you get. It's not like if you go and buy stuff you don't want, you're wasting your own money. Rather, it's just a shot in the dark. And so, yes, a lot of what I'm saying is, sure, psychology is great. We should take psychology seriously, economists really have been blind to a lot of important evidence, but let's apply it consistently. Let's not just go and say government should go and help people in markets because they're not totally rational. So, well, government's run by more human beings who are not totally rational. So what are they actually likely to do if you put power in their hands? In other words, you're saying that the things that we apply in the world of behavioral economics apply even more so in the world of politics. Because at least in markets, right, you're saying that the consequences of one's irrationality will at some point circle back to you. And so there's at least the possibility that you will, if not learn, there'll be some kind of selection, right? Yeah. So, I mean, just imagine that you go to the grocery store and you just buy a lot of junk. And obviously they do sell junk. You go to a pharmacy, they sell toenail fungus remedies that just don't work right? Because there's basically no non-prescription thing that works for telnofungus. fungus. So like you can say, well, you can go and put it in their cart in your cart and get ripped off. But still, if you exercise a little intellectual self-discipline and say, hmm, well, maybe it doesn't work, so I shouldn't buy it, you don't waste your money. 
On the other hand, if we vote for a toenail fungus remedy, then whether or not you actually vote for it or not, if it doesn't work, you got to pay for it. Well, you, in one of your essays, admit that you yourself don't vote, right? <laughs> I think most economists would say, you know, even the subset of people who do vote, it's almost by definition, they must be irrational in some sense, right? Well, it could be that they're just being altruistic. I mean, I'm totally willing to accept that. So it could be that you're a very reasonable person, but you say, this isn't just about me. This is about trying to go and help a lot of other people. And that's where my only point is, do you actually know more than other people? Or is this just something that almost everybody believes because it's so flattering to their egos? But yes, that's correct. I explain overall why I don't vote. I don't have any principled objection to someone voting if they have actually done their homework. My friend Jason Brennan has a great book called The Ethics of Voting that says this. I do think that if you are going to make a charitable donation, which is really what voting is, it's not something that you're doing out of your own objective self-interest, then it makes sense to say, is there something better that I could be doing with my time? The idea of the whole effective altruism movement is when you are engaged in charity, try to think of how to try to get the biggest bang for your buck. But still, I say, you know, the main problem with voting ethically is just that people go and vote when they have no idea what they're doing, but are full of righteous zeal. But one could also argue that voting doesn't matter, right? In that voting is an act of expression, right? And regardless of what people do when they're voting, the people that they vote for, they're going to be motivated by other things, right? And also because the attention span of voters is quite short. What some people have rightly pointed out is that, well, if you multiply your effect times the 8 billion people who are affected by your decision, maybe it actually is not a total waste of resources. But I think you're correct that the main reason why people do vote, it's not because they are calculating what the total effect on themselves or the world is, right? It's because they want to go and be part of something and express their positions And even if they have put almost no thought into those positions, still people really enjoy speaking out Mm -hmm. or really mildly enjoy speaking out. It's probably a better way of putting it because as almost everyone feels in their bones, if you charge people a hundred bucks to vote, hardly anybody would do it. So I teach a course on behavioral finance and we talk about how irrational people are who buy stocks, (laughs) who vote in corporate elections. But we also talk about how irrational managers are. And so, you know, it's really a question of which one do we think is more rational? And that would say something about corporate governance, right? Do we want to have direct voter control or do we want to insulate the managerial decision makers from the voters? You know, here in California, as someone who comes from California, you know, we have this kind of direct democracy where people vote on these referenda and so forth. And that always struck me as, I know a lot of people see that as a good corrective to political malfeasance. I see it as an opportunity for super uninformed people to make decisions on behalf of the entire polity. If voters are irrational, does that mean that we should think about protecting political decision makers from the oversight of voters in some way? It's a reasonable thing to wonder about. I mean, of course, if politicians are even crazier than voters, then no, it's just a question of, are they? My colleague, Garrett Jones, has a book called 10% Less Democracy. And what he says is by a lot of different measures, when you give politicians a bit more breathing room and less fear of voters finding out what they're doing, they do tend to actually do a better job. Like in particular, he talks about things like when politicians are going to be reelected this year, they start voting for crazier policies. When they know they've got a lot of years before the election's coming up, then they vote more reasonably. I think, for example, he talks about voting for free trade versus protection. Senators are more protectionist when they are coming up for re-election than during other periods. So I say overall that evidence I thought was pretty plausible. It's not open and shut. I mean, I would say the main thing about the referendum process, it adds a lot of chaos. (laughs) And... If you've just got a totally dysfunctional system locked in, the chaos is probably going to be an improvement. On the other hand, if the things are working tolerably well, then the chaos makes things worse. I say I just don't have a really strong view on direct versus indirect democracy. You know, the general point of most theories of politics is that there's just not that much difference because you can either directly vote for policies or you can vote for politicians who will vote for those policies. You shouldn't expect there to be that big of a difference between them, although you can imagine in some cases there would be. 
Now, in the book, The Myth of Rational Voter, I mean, you try to distinguish between what economists call rational ignorance and what you call, I think, rational irrationality. <laughs> so what, what exactly is the difference there? So rational ignorance is something that has been talked about in social science for a long time. It's just the idea that when time is money, it is often not worthwhile to get information, and so you can rationally make a decision to be ignorant. This could be for something like car repair, where it's like, well, to really understand car repair, I'd have to spend years. I'll just go and get ripped off by the repair shop occasionally. But in politics, it's very strong because, selfishly speaking, the odds that your vote will change the outcome of anything is so small that really you just have almost no selfish incentive to learn anything about politics. So to expect that political ignorance would rationally be extraordinarily high. And this does check out when you just ask people very basic questions about politics. Once you get past things like who's the president or what country you're in, people's knowledge is crazy low. But still, what I said after reading all this is it doesn't really capture how bad things are because it's you know, if it were just a matter of not knowing what was going on, then you expect the typical voter, you would ask them a question like, well, what do you think about free trade versus protection? And they say, well, I've never studied it, so I got no clue. And this is actually not what we usually see in politics. Most people in politics are not just a long list of having a clue, no opinion. Rather, people who have put almost no mental effort into questions still commonly have extremely vociferous, angry, dogmatic views, which does not fit with what an ignorant person would have. If you're ignorant, it's like, I don't know, whatever. It's more like someone saying, I totally know. I don't need to read anything about free trade versus protection to know that foreign products are bad, and the fewer we have in this country, the better. I say that's much more typical of politics. This is where I say that the same incentives that give you very little reason to acquire information also give you very little reason to be intellectually honest, to exert normal intellectual self-discipline. And those latter things are what I call rational rationality. This is really what gives politics its religious flavor. This is something that is hardly original to me. People have been saying, well, politics is replacing religion for over 100 years. But I think these days it's really clear. Like the number of people that get really worked up over their religious doctrines, it's just not very interesting to people anymore. But the number of people who just live and breathe the news cycle and everything about what's happening in politics, that's quite common. I think it's probably the most common effective religion that Americans have right now is I'm in the red tribe or I'm in the blue tribe. It doesn't even have the saving grace of religion of it being a social club where you go to once a week and make some friends, unfortunately. Well, that would suggest that revealed preferences imply that people would actually rather not know more <laughs> about the underlying mechanics of, say, politics oh, yeah. and economics. That's correct. And in fact, that's exactly what I say is, well, for the individual, I'm not saying that they are doing something that is imprudent for themselves. However, the social effects are very bad. You know, in the same way that when you drive a polluting car, you aren't hurting yourself. What difference does your pollution make to the total quality of the air? Barely any. But if everybody thinks that way, then you're going to be breathing some real dirty air. And similarly, if one person just has some crazy political views and votes on the basis of them, it's not going to mess up the whole country, not by any means, it won't even mess up your city. But if such practices are widespread, then you really can get majorities voting for disaster. Or if not disaster, you can just get them voting for something that is truly subpar, passing up fantastic opportunities that really are on the table if you step back and think about it. Well, I mean, a lot of people would say that's the whole point of education, right? Apart from giving somebody practical knowledge that they can earn a living from, I mean, the idea is that they're supposed to become educated participants in the democratic process, right? And so in the book, Case Against Education, it's hard to find a lot of empirical support for, you know, are successfully educating people in that way. Why is that? I mean, is that for lack of trying or is that simply beyond the capabilities of the educational system? I think it comes down to this. Most people just find this stuff so boring that you can tell them over and over again and just in one year and out the next, they might write it down for the test if they're good students, but then they forget it again. I mean, the normal thing for human beings is to forget whatever it is that they don't keep using, so it's not so surprising. To this, we have to add on the fact that teachers are often themselves such fanatics that it's a good thing that students aren't listening to them. This problem has gotten more severe over time, so these days, like, wow, thank goodness the teachers are not very effective at changing students' minds because what teachers think is, on average, so silly or worse. 
But what I have said elsewhere is that if you really wanted people to actually acquire additional knowledge, instead of going and just giving them a final exam, what you do is every year there'd be a test and anyone who wants to can go and take the test. And if you get a good score, you get some money. And this has the advantage that you are getting people to keep reusing this information that they've got. It's a reason to keep learning more. And also, by the way, I don't even, not even that worried that the test will be biased because as I know as a student, if you have a very biased professor, you still learn a lot by figuring out what does this guy want to hear from me? Yeah. Well, so I'm not even that worried about the politicization of the test. I think that just having one that people have to do a few weeks before an election, it would at least raise people's levels of basic knowledge and give people an incentive to maintain that knowledge. So that is one of the basic problems of pedagogy is in one year out the next, just know it for the exam and then forget about it. Well, I mean, you particularly highlight people's lack of understanding of economics in particular. But, you know, when we think about something like medicine or physics or engineering, we're more willing to defer to experts, right? When your fridge is broken, you don't typically say, oh, I know how to do that. But when it comes to things like, or even medicine, there are plenty of people that believe in quack cures. But I think for the most part, we're willing to believe that doctors know something that we don't know. So why this lack of faith in the economics profession? I mean, you've written extensively on immigration. And while I don't think it's unanimous, I think that the economics profession, probably their median view of immigration is different from that of the general public. And same thing with free trade. And, you know, there are a lot of other issues. Why this lack of deference to the wisdom of economists? Part of what's going on is economists are talking about things people actually care about. It's part of their ideology, part of their sense of identity. You, know, you don't really care about what the right theory of the refrigerator is. It's not like every day you say, ah, I'm a person who believes in Freon. But on the other hand, if some economist comes along and says free trade is better than protectionism, this goes to the heart of many people's whole worldview. It's like, well, what do you mean? This is our country. We need to protect ourselves from these foreign products. So I think that's part of it. Another part is that at least what I consider to be the best parts of economics, really just focus on just telling people ugly truths. Ugly truths, pretty much by definition, are truths people don't want to hear. Not even things like free trade and protectionism, things like there are scarce resources, we can't have everything. This is like the first economics class in Econ 1 normally. And it's on the one hand, it's like, you can't deny that. Like you can't deny their scarcity, that we can't all have everything we want. And yet economists play this role of reminding people Look, we can't have everything. So stop pretending like we can. And if a politician goes and says otherwise, he's lying. So those people are bad. This is the kind of thing that economists do. I'm working on a new book actually called Unbeatable, The Brutally Honest Case for Free Markets, where I really just try to upplay the idea that the contribution of economics to society is just telling us ugly truths. You don't need people to tell you the pretty truths. Even the neutral truths, like what makes a refrigerator work, nobody cares. But when there's an ugly truth, that's what matters. That's where an expert really has something useful to say. So you're like, I know what you want to hear is this, but that ain't the truth. Here's what's really going on. I know you want to hear that wind and solar can go and replace fossil fuels, but guess what? That's just a complete fantasy. We're not going to have wind-powered airplanes. So to stop even imagining that's possible and think about other options this is the kind of thing that really does need to be said. Well, look, I mean, I think most people would understand motivated reasoning. So in other words, if my income is going to go down as a result of immigration, let's say, then it's relatively easy to convince myself that it's bad for the country as a whole. But if for some reason this is something that I will benefit from, and presumably more people would benefit than be harmed, then presumably you would have a motivation to believe it's good for the country as a whole. And if that were true, then most good policies that increase the pie would ultimately find more people supporting them, even if they didn't support them for good reasons. Yeah. So there we have to go back to this point I was making that having a correct political view basically does not change the probability that prevails. So the fact that it isn't your self-interest for a policy to prevail does not really give you any motivation to go and believe it. Never mind the obvious fact that a lot of policies are complicated and you would really have to study them for a long time even to know whether it was good or bad for you. But this deeper point of... The motivation is not to go and push the policies that are good for you into policy because you've got no power to do that. So then what other motivation might you have? Well, here's a very human motivation. How about the motivation to be liked by other people around you? 
the motivation to feel like a likable person. This is something that you totally can change. So like, you know, opinions on the minimum wage, what we see is almost everyone thinks it's a good idea. It doesn't matter whether you are a low-wage worker or high-wage worker or a capitalist retiree, almost everyone favors the minimum wage, which does not make sense if your story is people are pushing for the policy, which if implemented would benefit them. But it makes a lot of sense for people are in favor of the policy that makes them seem like a nice person to other people around their vicinity. So I think that explains a lot more of what's going on. Here's a very striking fact. Around the world, pretty much 0% of people claim to be rich. When people say tax the rich or the rich are to blame, this works because almost no one on earth considers themselves to belong to this group. It's basically you are blaming an outgroup with a population of zero because people don't identify as rich. You're wondering, well, why wouldn't anyone identify as rich? And we can see in the data, people who own multiple homes, oh, I'm not rich. So what are you talking about? Of course you're rich. And the answer is that not just in the United States, but basically in every country that we can study, almost no human being wants to go in front of an audience and say, well, as a rich person, as a person who is quite wealthy, haha, that's not what human beings want to do. Like the most that anyone in the US wants to claim to be is upper middle class. I'm not, God, I'm not rich, I'm upper middle class. And in this way, you feel like a decent human being. Like people don't want to identify as rich. People that are rich are not looking around for policies that would benefit the rich if adopted. They're looking for an identity that makes them feel good about themselves and makes other people around them feel good about well, them. Well, look, I, fair enough. You referred to what you call the social desirability bias. I get it. But isn't that sort of endogenous? I mean, it's kind of accidental who owns that narrative. If you think about immigration, you could say people want to keep immigrants out. They don't look like likable people to me at least, whereas other people, they look like likable people. I remember, I think about gun control. Is gun control, you like gun owners or you want to be liked by the people who are getting shot? Doesn't it really depend on who has essentially convinced you that this bias goes in one direction versus the other? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. What I say is sometimes you're right and that what it makes you seem like a likable person varies from time to time and country to country. But there are some constants, some things that really don't change. One of the big ones is, do you identify with our group? Are you a loyal member of our group? Now, what the group is does change over time. Like in early 18th century France, most people didn't really think of themselves as French. They thought of themselves as being part of a region of France, like I am from Breton, or even from a town or a city, right? Or in mid-19th century Poland, People thought of themselves more as Catholic rather than as Polish. So these things do change, but still you can say, look, the normal thing in the modern world is people think of themselves first and foremost as a citizen of their country, right? And even people that in their own minds say, oh, I'm not a big nationalist. They are actually. Nationalism is such a part of the air that we breathe in. Almost everyone sees things from a nationalistic point of view. Probably the most infamous case of this in history is in 1914, in Germany, you had the German Social Democratic Party officially. They're totally internationalist Marxists. But when push comes to shove, they vote for German war credits because they were actually Germans above all, and they don't believe any of the stuff about working men of no country. No, we are German. We are socialists from Germany. And so Germany must prevail for German socialism to prevail. That's more of the mentality. So that's why normally being anti-immigration is the position that sounds good to people because this is how you're showing I am a loyal American. I value Americans first. The slightest harm to any American counts for more than the greatest gain to any foreigner. We have to fix our own problems first, which is another way of saying the rest mm -hmm. of the world can go screw itself because we're never going to fix our own problems. But yes, it might seem like another view would sound good, but you have to just get a little bit more embedded into the culture they're in to, re to really understand what's going on. I do have a piece, I think it actually, I'm trying to remember if it's in this particular book. I think it might be actually, but it's called Immigration Versus Social Desirability Bias. And it's one where, say, look, there's something about immigration that just rubs people the wrong way because things that people say are things like my country right or wrong. It's not just about money. I just love this country. I don't care how much you pay me. I want my, like the most important thing is for my kids to grow up being members of the society. And what do you really say with your actions when you immigrate? You're saying, yeah, it's not my country right or wrong. My country screwed up. I'm leaving. 
you say, yeah, it's not that important for, to me for my kid to be Bolivian. I'd rather that we have we are comfortable and rich and safe in America, and he was an American and just forgot all about Bolivia. I can live with that. Good trade. So there's something about immigration that does rub people the wrong way because it's really a way of saying that all of this cheap talk about how my country comes before all else, I'd give my life for it, is just not true. So, I mean, then you're saying that an exercise of imagination or thoughtful examination isn't going to matter that much because it's... I mean, I was thinking here, I'm in Berkeley, so, you know, rent control, right? Everyone, it's almost unanimous in Berkeley that everybody loves rent control. I was at the supermarket recently and someone walked up and said, you know, here's a petition you want to sign. It's about rent control. And I said, well, is it before or against? And he looked at me like I was a <laughs> lunatic. What do you mean? Yeah. There's only one yeah. way that you can be, right, signing a petition related to, to rent control because the people who... I was actually a student in Berkeley when my philosophy professor, John Searle's wife, won the case which eviscerated rent control. It basically not only said that you had to give a full cost of living adjustment, but it made it retroactive. So I think overnight rents went up like 30 to 50%. Wow. Well, I haven't, yeah. yeah. It was our, <laughs> that was like 1992 or <laughs> Yeah. Well, I don't think anything's, it might've been a one-time deal, but we still have it here and it's in effect. Yeah. It, it just made it much less effective than it had been before. Because basically before, I think that the annual rent increase was only like 20% of inflation mm -hmm. every year, thereabouts. And so every year market rents were getting- Now it's more about half of, now it's about half, it was half, it's, I think it's half of inflation yeah. now, half of the CPI. Oh, yeah. Right, huh. So maybe someone else won another case against, I think it was Dagmar Searle, if I remember. Her yeah. Name. Well, the people who can't find housing and the houses that aren't being <laughs> rented out as a result, those seem to be invisible. But I think- Education around those issues, I think, probably would have minimal impact if it is something that is tied up in an identity. But, I mean, some people would say that the U.S. is coalescing into these two camps, right, these two political camps. Others would say it's fragmenting into even smaller, more granular identity groupings around race and gender and sexual orientation and so forth. Which is it? Are we joining or splitting, I think in the end, if you held a gun to my head, I would say we're joining. Overall, there's a coalescing into two mutually antagonistic tribes. It's true that there's also a splitting that's happening under, like you know, if you look under the surface, but I'd say a lot of that splitting is there's less to it than meets the eye. So yes, you can go and have LGBTIA plus and then put a two-spirit in front and everything else, but still like all of that is clearly part of the blue tribe. And so every time there's another split there, it's not like there's a big pressure to go and split the blue tribe. It's more of just extra things getting packed into that same tribe. And for the red tribe, same basic thing. So this is something that political scientists have talked about for a long time. When you have a two-party system, this just naturally tends to lead to two different identities. In a way, you might say, what took us so long? Why was it that you know, basically in the 60s, people did not consider it a big deal to go and marry someone from the other party, but now they do, right? So what really changed? And there I would say that a lot of it probably is the internet, which just made people aware of the worst people on the other side. When you only had three major television stations and two daily newspapers, and that was your only sources of information besides firsthand experience, then you just were not aware of how ugly the worst people on the other side are. And now you get to find out. Well, now you're a self-identified libertarian. And it seems like this group never seems to gain any serious traction. It sort of falls between the cracks between these two groups. Why is that? Is there something inherently unappealing psychologically about this persuasion? Yeah, funny that you should say that. There's a very common radical left-wing view that the Republican Party is essentially run by libertarians and maybe half the Democratic Party too. They usually call it neoliberalism rather than libertarianism, but they pretty much use mm -hmm. the terms interchangeably. So I guess it's, so it's a matter of perspective, I guess, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, there is this odd conspiracy theory that libertarians are ruling the world already despite seeming to be an irrelevant minority. I think the true story is actually that libertarians are a fairly irrelevant minority but with a bunch of odd provisos, for example, especially when the right wing needs to have some intellectuals, they're just so short on actual intellectuals, they often just go to libertarians because they got nobody else. So libertarians punch way above weight in Republican administrations for the regulatory state, for example. 
The number of libertarians who get appointed to positions of regulatory authority under Republicans is crazy high relative to their population, just because Republicans look around and say, well, who are some econ PhDs that don't hate us? Like, oh, yeah, there's like a few some libertarians. Anybody normal? No? All right, I guess we'll go and give it to them. So that's part of what's going on is the libertarians punch above weight. You can really see this anytime any conservative organization has an essay contest. Normal conservatives don't write essays for essay contests. So who wins these contests? Yeah, it's some libertarians who win their essay contests and get the prizes, which is again another way in which libertarians are punching above weight and have more influence than you would think. The Libertarian Party specifically, of course, is a irrelevant thing. And even to the idea of getting the major parties to move, I don't think it's been effective at that either. So overall, the situation is a little bit strange. There, the left-wing conspiracy theory that libertarians run the world already and we just don't admit it is ridiculous. But if you tone it down a lot and just say that libertarian intellectuals punch way above weight because the left doesn't like them at all, and the right just has a shortage of intellectuals. I think there's something to that. Well, wouldn't they also say, if you look at the Washington consensus, right? When the IMF goes out to the rest of the world, they're pushing markets, right? And these are oftentimes unpopular policies. And mm -hmm. is it just that libertarians can only survive in environments where they can impose top-down policies <laughs> over the resistance of the, of the public in those countries? Well, what I'd say is that this Washington census you talk about has basically been dead for 20 years. So there were like WTO protests and so on in the late 90s. And after that, international organizations basically said, look, it's not our place to go and tell countries what to do internally. We're just going to go and, and try to have a more respectful approach. And since the approach that most countries on earth want to have is a very status economic policy, then they're respecting a status economic policy. Now, as to what was going on in that earlier period... Here, what I would say is that there is an equivocation between uh, as to what neoliberalism is, right? So, like me and Larry Summers will both get called neoliberals by, say, The Nation magazine, one of the foremost left-wing magazines in the world, right? And you're like, well, what is it that me and Larry even agree on? By normal standards in the economics profession, we are at very op nearly opposite ends, but. What you can say is that Larry and I can both agree on a bunch of claims that I'll put into the sky is blue category of things like you can't run massive deficit deficits forever. Yeah, but those are only sky is blue category for economists. They're not sky is blue category for the general public. Right? Well, actually, what I would say that the things that get called neoliberalism or things that get Larry Summers called neoliberal, they are things that really anyone other than a hard left ideologue would have to admit are true. Basically, there's the things that differentiate me between me and Larry. These are the things that are genuinely unpopular. The things that bind us together are the things that normal people would agree with, but hard left intellectuals think are terrible. Things like you can't run massive deficits forever. This is not a view that even a normal person on the street will disagree with. If you just say, yeah, can we run trillion dollar deficits forever? No. Okay. And I'll agree with that. Larry agrees with that. However, if you're a hard left-wing ideologue, then you don't want to hear it, right? That's just ideology. Or things like, if you make the minimum wage a million dollars an hour, that will cause unemployment. I agree with that. Larry agrees with that. And I think if you go and put it that way, you can even get a person on the street to say, yeah, well, I guess if it was a million dollars an hour, then it would. And this is the kind of stuff where a hard left intellectual would just say, no, I refuse to accept that, right? That kind of thing. And I think the Washington census was largely about that. Things like, it is not a good idea to have government run the entire economy. Full-blown socialism is bad. You don't want to run massive deficits. You don't want to have massive inflation. That sort of thing. Just trivial stuff that economists tried going and pushing other countries to do in the 90s. And then in the face of some pushback, they said, okay, I guess we'll just stop telling them even basic common sense. So that would be my story anyway, if what's going on. Well, if there's one thing that right and left can agree on, it's that more education is always better, right? And uh, <laughs> so in, in this area, you two are a bit of a iconoclast. Now, look, the idea of signaling is not a new one. I mean, Michael Spence got the Nobel Prize for it. But I think you take the signaling model to on steroids a bit. You know, what, why, what exactly is the problem with the massive amount of resources that we currently devote to education at all levels. Yeah. So first, let's back up. So the book you're talking about is The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. And what I say in this book is that 
while we think about education as helping people to get better jobs by giving them better job skills, a lot of what's going on is that you're just getting a stamp on your forehead. You are getting certified. You're getting credentialed. You are being put into the bin of grade A worker or grade B worker or so on. From the point of view of an individual, it doesn't really matter why education helps you to get a better job and raise your income. But from the point of view of policy, it matters a lot. If what education does, is it, it turns an unskilled workforce into a skilled workforce. It is a system for enriching a society. On the other hand, if it is a way for deciding who is better and who is worse, for deciding who has the good stamps in the forehead and who does not, then it is not a way for society to get rich. It's a way for an individual to get rich without enriching a society. Oh, wait, hold on. That's like saying credit scoring doesn't matter, right? We don't want to waste resources hiring people that turn out to be duds. If everyone were to have a credit score that was 100 better, and especially if you just go and change the scale, <laughs> just say, let's go and do this, then yeah, that would not matter as well. Yes, it is true. There is some value in ranking people from best to worst, but it's not like we weren't doing that 60 years ago. The idea, if we could just go and get everyone to get one more degree, that would be a good thing. That is really taken for granted by both left and right. Not quite as uniformly by the right, but still the normal view, regardless of politics, is that we want to go and have a really educated workforce. And what I say there is no, this is a bad thing. We are having people waste enormous number of years in their school learning stuff that they will never need to know again. They barely even learn it in the first place. So it's even more pointless and futile than that. So the slogan that I have is this, we like to think about education as job training, whereas really is much more of a passport to the real training, which happens on the job. Now, by the way, actually, the last couple of years, something very strange has happened, which is that for totally irrelevant reasons to what I'm talking about, a lot of right-wingers are actually mad about education. <laughs> Finally, they're basically mad about it because schools took piles of money during COVID to not do their job. And I can totally understand why they're mad about that. It's like at least the schools used to give daycare and during COVID, they said, yeah, we don't even feel like doing that, but we still want all the money. And then on top of it, there is the left-wing indoctrination, which was there for many decades, but has gotten up to extraordinary levels. I mean, to me, again, a lot of the puzzle is why wasn't the right-wing critical of college decades ago? Because it's been very left-wing for a long time, but it's just gotten so obvious, so blatant that now for reasons that are relevant to what I'm saying, I think now finally there is actually right-wing skepticism of higher education. I like to imagine that I did nudge things in a better direction and by pushing signaling, I made people feel less nervous about, well, how are we gonna run a modern workforce if we don't have everyone go and do their women's studies? But I don't actually imagine that I was a crucial factor here. I think it's just people losing their eyes. Let's set aside the bias for a second and just dig into this signaling model, right? So if we think signaling adds value, right? And employers want to know who's got the potential and who doesn't. And presumably that is not a pure deadweight loss. You're basically saying that we could get the same exact signaling result with a substantially lower investment. And what we have is sort of a, an arms race, a signaling arms race. Okay. So how would we do that? Well, actually it's real easy. Spend less. We used to get a ranking with having people spend far fewer years in school. A lot of the reason was we just spent less money. Education was less accessible, which I say was good for society because when you make it accessible, you also mean that if you don't do it, it looks bad. Back in 1945, only 25% of American adults would have finished high school. So the stigma for being a dropout was very low in those days. You could still rise to very high levels. On the other hand, now the stigma is very high because large majority of people go and finish high school. So now be like 80, 85% of people finish high school, depending upon how you measure it. And now we're getting close to 40% of adults over the age of 40 have, or at least people in the workforce have a bachelor's degree, which means the bachelor's degree doesn't really prove very much anymore. When I talk to economists about this, by the way, they often like to say, hey, Brian, this current system passes the market test. And this is where I say, are you out of your mind? There's about a trillion dollars of government subsidies per year in favor of the status quo. That is the exact opposite of passing the market test. This is like saying that football stadiums funded entirely by taxpayers pass the market test. That's the definition of failing the market test is if the government is the one that pays for everything. Right. So, I mean... You could argue that we should ban SAT prep because all SAT prep does is just right, shift everybody up and then they have to recalibrate it and then everybody has to spend even more on SAT prep. And so you're presumably not arguing that we ought to put some kind of restriction on what kind of education you can acquire, but you would 
support reducing spend. I mean, if we look at what the recent loan forgiveness proposals, uh, for those of us who are in the education industry, this seems like a wonderful infusion of cash into our pockets because we'll be able to jack up tuitions even more, right? Well, assuming that this is not a one-time thing, right? I mean, the immediate beneficiaries are previous customers right. who don't have we already got the money and then they just don't have to pay and taxpayers have to pay. But yes, if people actually look forward and say, hey, maybe I'll never have to pay for this stuff, then yeah, that is fantastic for- But it's not necessarily good for the students because that just means they have to spend even more years you know, proving themselves, right? Yes. And it just means that as more and more people have the degree, it means less and less. And either you've got to go to a better school or a harder major or do more years. When I pull my undergraduates, how many people plan to just get their bachelor's degrees and stop? Yeah, hardly any hands go up. Everyone feels like, yeah, I can't get a decent job with just this bachelor's degree. I'm going to have to go back and get another degree. This is a would have been a strange idea to people 50 years ago, but now is the norm. Sure. Well, I think another point is that the signaling value is going down in general because of, say, grade inflation. You used to be able to get a D or a C at an Ivy League school. I mean, now I don't know what you have to do to get it. Do you know? Is there a how-to guide on how to do poorly in higher ed? Because I'm not sure that I don't really know how. If you're in STEM, yeah. Well, actually, here's the easiest one. Don't show up and then you'll fail. I'm not so sure that would, that, I'm not sure that's enough. If you don't even show up for the exams, I think there's very few professors who won't give you an F. <laughs> right? There's that basic minimum standard, which you might say, how hard is that? And the answer is a lot of students don't show up. You don't teach in business school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they're probably a bit better, but yeah, then the next one is just doesn't do the work at all. And of course, then there is uh, in STEM, they still have standards and they'll still give you Fs if you just can't do the work. So there's that. Now, I would actually say that while there's got to have been some uh, great inflation at some of the top schools, but in general, research on this is quite a bit more mixed than you would think. And so it, like, it's just not as clear that's well, the, 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 what's going on. I think that, you know, a lot of it is just that now we just have created a lot of more bogus majors where weak students can go and hide. Well, but I think the point is that as an individual, you can't really opt out of this signaling arms race, right? I mean, if you decide I'm not going to go to college or whatever, notwithstanding Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates, if you decide unilaterally to not play the game, I mean, your career prospects are going to be quite daunting, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that, that is my whole story, really, is that while the system is collectively wasteful, it is not in general a bad idea for individuals to take part in this farce. Sometimes people say, oh, so I just shouldn't go to college. Like, that's not what I'm telling you. Now, in the book, I do talk about some of the subtleties. So in particular, I do say that on top of everything else, we also have a system where we strongly advise even very weak students with very low prospects of graduating to go to college anyway. And for them, I do think it is a bad idea. I think that these are basically naive youngsters who are being told falsehoods by school advisors and friends and even parents. So for someone like that, I would say that going to college is just a bad bet for you, and you would be much better off going and looking into, say, the trades, trying to become a skilled plumber, electrician, something like that. Something else, during COVID, I really was telling people, look, this is an incredible opportunity for people that want to go and get a better job but don't have the right credentials to take advantage of the unusual circumstance to just skip the system. And actually, I do have a number of readers who followed my advice and did manage to get better jobs than they normally could have. There was one kid who actually, he was at Northwestern, he was a senior, and there were some stupid rules that were basically going to require him to pay a full extra years of worth of his life and tuition to finish the degree. And he then, through my blog, he managed to go and get a job in finance and he just dropped out of Northwestern and now he's working in the industry and probably no one's going to worry about his credential ever again. Mm -hmm. During normal times, he wouldn't have been able to pull it off. And there's some other people also just took advantage of this. And I said, look, credential inflation is going to be t is temporarily weak because people are desperate for workers. And if you are motivated, you can go and possibly skip the queue, especially if you just send out a lot of applications, put a lot of effort in. But that effort is almost nothing compared to going back and getting a degree. And some other people did write back and said, like, I tried it. I'm the only person who has this job who doesn't have the degree. Ha ha. And I said, yeah, good for you. So it's important to just remember that the world is not as monolithic as it might seem, and it's not 
equally monolithic all the time. But nevertheless, if there was a smart 18-year-old who says, I'm thinking about not going to college, I would say, uh, yeah, you're probably messing up your life. I think the standard signaling story, which lies at the core of your book, is one that involves rational actors, right? And they're just playing this game because they have to. But I think you're still a solid Beckerian. But I think you also would argue that there's some irrationality and some opportunities to, to... yeah, you, know, like you ask a 17-year-old to make a big decision for the rest of their life, and you think they're going to do a good job when teachers, friends, and parents are telling them something stupid. Yeah, but also not. employers, right? I mean, you see employers now increasingly looking for ways to bypass this, right? Because ultimately, they're the ones that are going to have to pay for this. So if you're Google and you can find a coder, I, I had a dinner recently with a guy who works at Google. He's a very senior position, and he dropped out of high school. And he's a very strange guy. He's into science fiction and all this geeky stuff, and he just did his own thing. And now he's got this super senior position and Google didn't care that he never finished high school. They didn't care that he never went to college. They just saw what he had on GitHub and they said, we want this guy. Do they not care? Or was he so impressed in other ways that they decided that it was, that it would offset? Yeah. So he had other ways of signaling that didn't require the expenditure of $150,000. Right. Like I've often talked to people at top tech firms who at first will say, oh yeah, we don't care about credentials. It's all about skills. And I'm like, oh, really? He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so like if someone won a computing contest, then they could hire without a college degree. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, so, okay, how many people have you hired for winning contests who, who dropped out of high school? And how many people have you hired who have conventional awesome degrees? And like, yeah, there's three people who are contest winners and there's 5,000 who have normal conventional degrees. So it's one where you just have to be so incredible to go that alternate path. Often I've been on panels with people run businesses who say, look, we in business, we don't care about credentials. We only care about skills, hard, provable, demonstrable skills. And I say, okay, so how many high-ranking people at your firm do you employ who don't have fancy credentials? Well, not at my firms, but I read in the Wall Street Journal. Uh Uh-huh. So basically, you're not talking about anything that you have any special knowledge of. This is not what really goes on at your firm or any firm you know about. It's what you read in the freaking newspaper. You don't know anything. Well, part of this arms race trickles down to parenting, right? And so I think part of the message of your book on parenting was that the perception that one has to be the super parent is perhaps overblown, right? Definitely overblown. Definitely. But but why is that? If the employers are looking for credentials and the universities are looking for credentials, don't you have to drive your kid to band camp and to a math camp and to all these other things in order to make sure that they can you know make the cut? Uh, the answer is that when we look at the data, we just don't see that, that stuff matters very much. And you may say, like, how would you know that? The answer is that we've got two big bodies of evidence for understanding why people turn out the way that they do. We've got adoption studies where we look at what happens when someone gets adopted by non-relatives and raised by them. And we've got twin studies where we compare identical twins who share all their genes to fraternal twins who share half their genes. You can use that to measure the effect of genes. And once you know that, you can also do some further math to figure out how much room is left for upbringing. And the punchline is that within the first world, upbringing just doesn't matter that much. You could get adopted by a wide range of families and it would make only a very small difference in how you turn out. Not zero generally, but small. So for example, a very standard result is that if you get adopted by a family where the mom has an extra year of education, on average, you finish five more weeks. So like a 0.1 transmission rate, where every year of parental education in the environment turns into 0.1 extra years for you as the kid. It's not zero, but it really is a very small amount. Now you're right, it is an interesting question, why does it matter so little? Anyone who's ever raised two different kids will have some notion of this. It's like if you have one kid and you do stuff for them and it works, it's like, oh, well, my parenting is incredibly effective. Then you do the same thing for another kid. Like, it doesn't work on this kid. It's like, huh, maybe it was really about the difference between the kids rather than what you were doing that actually mattered. And maybe the kids were going to go and get to those two different paths either way. Now, I have done some very unusual things with my kids, like I've homeschooled and I've had people say, oh, thou hypocrite, you say it doesn't matter. If you really believe that, you wouldn't be homeschooling. And I'll say, well, look, I wrote an essay about this at the beginning. You can read the essay at least. I have thought about this objection. And there I'll say two things. First of all, I was very mindful of this, but what I saw was that my older kids were very unhappy in regular school. And I do think that you can make your kids more or less happy at the moment. You can take them to Disneyland or you can say, no Disneyland, you're bad kids. And you can make their day good or bad based upon that. 
And similarly, something that changes their daily experience while they're with you, that does make a difference for how your kids are living. The question that I'm talking about usually in my kids' book is long-run effects. So that's part of it is, look, I was doing it more for their happiness than to go and try to turn them into supermen. But then the other thing is probably part of a lot of what's going on is that the range of what parents do just doesn't vary that much. So there just isn't that big of a difference between the most lackadaisical parents that are allowed to adopt a kid and the strictest parents that are allowed to adopt a kid, right? Because you know, even lackadaisical parents are still doing a good amount of stuff. And even strict parents, when you really pay attention, often are not really that strict in a lot of ways. So another thought that I have is if you really want to change your kid's long-run outcomes, you got to do something weird. You got to do something that is literally off the charts, something that is rare enough that we just don't see it happening in normal data sets. So I say, yeah, maybe going and taking 12-year-olds and changing their peer group from other 12-year-olds into economics professors. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a big enough change, for example, to make a big difference in their lives. Obviously, if you want your kid to learn a foreign language, you can do it. You just got to move to that country so that all their friends speak the language you want them to learn and you can do it. But if you think you're going to get them to learn langu- foreign language well by just taking them to Kunan, Kumon twice a week, don't make me laugh. It's not going to work. But look, I mean, the thrust of the book is not really about parenting and how to make your kids better off. Mm-hmm. It's about how to make yourself better off. And I think you're saying that there is this massive amount of irrationality out there. I think you're arguing that most people are making suboptimal decisions with respect to mm-hmm. how many children to have. And that number is... And, and, and how to raise them. Yeah. And so generally they're having too few children and they're in, investing too much effort in raising each one of them. Now, is this just a question of misunderstanding the ROI? Is this about a failure of hedonic forecasting? Is this hyperbolic discounting? What exactly is it? And if it's so pervasive and persistent, why hasn't it corrected itself? Because we would think that at least in private behavior, these irrationalities, you get some feedback. And maybe if even if you don't have the ability to benefit from it, because it's too late, you would tell your friends and colleagues, hey, you know, I screwed up. (laughs) I didn't have enough kids. Right. Now, just to be clear, I would not say that people are having too few kids given their parenting style. At least I don't think that's so clear. Really, what I focus on is people's parenting style is based on this false belief that you need to endure a lot of painful sacrifices to give your kid a decent future. But aren't you also arguing that they're not incorporating the entire life cycle cost of this? Even with the aggressive parenting, you're arguing that the downstream benefits are better. I do say that as well. I say that too. So I think that most people do decide their family size based upon current exhaustion rather than weighing, well, how many kids do I want now? How many kids will I want in 40 years? But the main thing I tell people is that first fix your parenting style to get in line with the facts because it's just not true that your kid's future is in your hands. And then secondly, once you do that, once you have relaxed to this level, that is when it makes sense to rethink the number of kids you want to have. So like my friend Tyler is always saying, oh, you think the Amish are the most reasonable people? I'm like, I don't think the Amish are the most reasonable people. I mean, <laughs> they're living a very hard lifestyle without electricity voluntarily. No, I highly recommend against living without electricity. Electricity is great. And in fact, I would I say, yeah, first of all, you'll get elect- you have electricity and then use that to make your life as a parent easier. So part of it is that as to why people are not fixing this view, I think there's a couple things going on. One is that parenting is an area where people are extremely conformist. And I will stick my neck out and say, especially moms, whose decision about how to raise kids and how many kids to have is probably more important, or his opinions about those two are probably more important for what families actually do. So we have high levels of conformity. We can see this just how we have baby booms and baby busts. What's going on? It just looks like people are looking around. What's normal? What's normal? What do I don't want to look weird. So is this also social desirability? So you don't want to look like a bad parent by, you know, neglect. I mean, if my parents were alive today, they would probably be abused and chastised by all their neighbors for being so negligent. Right. I reserve this phrase, social desirability bias, for when there's a conflict between words and actions. I would say that just worrying about what other people think, that's just conformity and we don't need any fancy idea. But the other thing that I would say is going on is this, figuring out the effect of parenting on children's outcomes is super hard because you have to disentangle nature and nurture. It really took scientists thousands of years before they hit upon using these twin adoption methods to get to the truth. So if the brightest minds in the world took thousands of years to figure out how to answer the question, I don't really think that it's so surprising that people haven't figured it out for themselves. Furthermore, this is one where we have additional evidence that this problem is even harder than it seems 
Because not only in most families do you blend nature and nurture in this well, inseparable way, but on top of it, we also know from twin adoption research that the effects of upbringing are much bigger in the short run than in the long run for a lot of different measures, which means that parents do actually, when they rely upon their firsthand experience, it's misleading because they're not wrong to think that they are changing their kids' outcomes in the short run. They're just mistaken in thinking that those effects are going to last. The analogy that I use in my book is that we like to think about kids as being like clay, where you shape them once and they stay that way, whereas really they're more like flexible plastic, which does respond to pressure in a lot of ways. But when you release the pressure, which happens almost inevitably in adulthood, it pops back to the shape that it otherwise would have had. And so you don't actually see the effect continuing. So, I mean, was this disappointing to you when you found this out or was this liberating that you would have minimal yeah, impact. For me, it's liberating. Like, you know, I, you could say I'm a glass half full kind of guy, but you know, it comes down to like, you can get this kids at the quality level that you thought you were going to get for a lot less sacrifice. So if there's stuff that you enjoy doing with your kids, great, keep doing it. You don't have to do it for the long run benefit. You can just do it because you like doing it. And on the other hand, the stuff that you don't want to do guilt-free, you can stop doing it because it's not really necessary for the future anyway. Yeah. So I think it's super liberating and this is the reasonable inter interpretation of the results. So when the price of something goes down, you do more of it, right? That's the yes. idea. Yeah. And especially, I mean, sometimes it's you know, like it is a price that's right in front of you, like a price tag. When you're really a good economist, you realize everything's got a price. It doesn't matter whether it's a price tag. It is just what do you have to give up in the real world? And once you know that, then you realize anytime you're confused about how the world works, you're confused about prices. If you think that a store is further away from you than it really is, you are acting on the false belief that the full price of groceries at that store is higher than it really is. And so there's a product that we can't get at Costco's in Virginia that you can get in other states, the Brazi Bite, the Brazilian cheese breads. And I actually have discovered, wow, you can buy these in other states, pack them in, uh, in your bag and they stay good. They don't melt. They don't get ruined. So I tried it as an experiment. I'm like, hmm, is security going to confiscate my brazi bites? Are they going to be ruined by the time I get them home? But I tried the experiment like, no, they go through security. Fine. They are still just as tasty when you get them home. It's fine. And so now, yeah, I bought like a whole summer supply of this stuff in other states when I was just happened to drive by a Costco in Chicago. So this is another case where if you have a false belief about how the world works, then your view about what the true, full, all-inclusive price is will be wrong. And for parenting, I say this is one of the most consequential mistakes people are making is thinking that you can only be a decent parent if you ruin your life. I've just finished a big review essay of The Case Against the Sexual Revolution by Louise Perry. And in there, she has a part all about how to be a parent is to give up your freedom and you just have to accept that. And reading this thing, you're like, oh, God. If I agreed with this stuff, I wouldn't want to be a parent. This sounds terrible. And I say, look, what she's saying just isn't true. This is her projecting her own negativity onto the world and onto her kids. And you don't have to do that. You so shouldn't. It's kind of a zero sum view of things. Yeah. Yeah. Or just, you know, like, just like an unduly pessimistic mm -hmm. view, I would say. Well, in this book, Don't Be a Feminist, you start off with this letter to your daughters. And it starts off with the question, are you a feminist or not? And obviously that depends on definitions. And I think that's true for a lot of concepts. DEI, of course, is in the news and everyone is pushing. I'm inclusive. Right. So I think it's possible to be both in favor of all three of those and yet be resistant to <laughs> what a lot of people are saying are those three things. So when you articulated your opposition to what some people say is feminism, you highlight some things which I think are fairly obvious empirical regularities, but maybe could you explain to me why do you think people don't acknowledge those empirical regularities, even in highly educated areas? I mean, I'm in the economics department, and we've got a lot of smart people who are very data-driven, but their understanding of the empirics is different from what you point out. Interesting you should say that. So in the essay, I consider the question, who are the best feminists in the world? And actually, I say the best feminists in the world are left-leaning labor economists, right? So probably the kind of people that you're thinking about. And what do I say? I say, look, I don't even think that the factual views that I have versus what they have are very different. What I think rather is that they are so caught up in their own society that when they see that, all right, what appears to be a 30 cent on the dollar pay gap between men and women is actually more like a five cent pay gap between men and women. And I see that and I say, okay, so at minimum... In popular conversation, we have multiplied the actual disparity by a factor of six, and we just should go and 
give an apology to all the people that, w- that we have falsely accused of doing this and just calm down, right? But if you are very caught up in the secular religion, you'll say it's still 5%. 5% is terrible. 1% is terrible. 0.01% is terrible. So I think that's a lot of it is that if you are caught up in a worldview where this is the most important thing, regardless of the actual magnitude, then you might study the magnitude publish papers saying the magnitude is not really that big by normal standards, but still be breathing fire over it and be very resentful when someone like me says it's not a big deal. And it's like, well, that's one where I'll say, look, how about we just compare it to other problems? And furthermore, once the problem is that small, then it's, could it be that the last 5% is also not really explained by unfairness to women, but it's explained by just say, we haven't measured all the variables. Is that possible? But as to why, if you go over to, say, the English department, then I don't think they're going to say this stuff, right? Then I think they actually will believe the simple story. Right now, as to why they are so hard to persuade, yeah, I think that it's because they are fanatics. It's part of their political religion. And they really, not only does it just sound bad to them, but they have gotten themselves into a mindset of anyone who would even think about this as evil, thought crime. And so I'm not going to listen. I'm just going to be angry. And I'm going to try to punish you for saying things, no matter how obvious they are. Well, Brian, I think we could talk a lot longer, but thanks so much for joining me. The books, we've got a whole bunch of books here. Most recent book is Voters as Mad Scientists, but we've got a whole bunch of others, including some of these oldies but goodies, Case Against Education, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, Open Borders, and The Myth of the Rational Voter. Thanks so much for joining me. Yep. And you can get all of them on Amazon and the latest books are just 12 bucks for the paperback or nine ninety nine for the ebook. So collect them all. There's four right now and four more coming out over the next couple of years. Okay. Talk soon. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Dot com.